Hello and welcome to BZ Listening. I'm your host, BZ Douglas, a journalist based in Cleveland, Ohio. And in my opinion, today's episode contains some bombshell revelations that have the potential to shake Ohio law enforcement to its core. My guest today is Mariah Crenshaw of Chasing Justice, LLC. According to her research, a significant portion of officers in the state, 40 to 60% in her opinion, are currently operating while designated as cease function. This is according to Ohio Revised Code 109.803 and Ohio Administrative Code 109.2-1-12. Whew, yeah, well, we'll get into the weeds of what all that means, but trust me, it's seismic. This story was first covered by Cleveland.com back in 2019 when Crenshaw and some other activists first issued arrest warrants for dozens of East Cleveland officers. The plain dealer then jumped on and followed up on that story in February of 2020 with a deeper dive into state training issues and highlighted Crenshaw's cases extensively. I quote now from that article. Crenshaw argued that arrests and tickets should be dismissed because the officers were out of compliance and should have been pulled from the streets. The department and the state knew, but did nothing, she said. The case is pending in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court. East Cleveland officials have since said all officers are now in compliance. Crenshaw spent three years researching the issue and requesting officer training information from the state. At her urging, the State Training Commission performed a rare audit on East Cleveland Police two years ago that found about two dozen officers should have been off the streets for periods of a time during 2015, 2016, and 2017. The audit also found that the state reimbursed East Cleveland for more than $10,000 in training that officers never received. The city was forced to repay the state. And that was by John Canigula of Cleveland.com and Rachel Dissel of The Plain Dealer. Since then, Crenshaw has widened her focus to every department in the state, requesting tens of thousands of records, cataloging, annotating, organizing, databasing, and preparing materials that could be used in lawsuits all over Ohio. This is yet another story that I stumbled upon in the course of working on a documentary about the Euclid Police Department's killing of Luke Stewart in 2017, along with other atrocities. My director and I were interviewing Christopher McNeil, the attorney of Richard Hubbard III, another survivor of the Euclid Police Department. And it was during that interview we asked McNeil to comment on some of the brutal training programs that had uncovered in their annual reports and other materials. There were also news reports about that. Um, specifically, we're asking him about Caliber Press and Lieutenant Dave Grossman, the self-professed killology expert. But that's when McNeil told us we had to talk to Crenshaw because the bad training that officers did take, that was only half the story. Before Crenshaw and I dive into the weeds of this scandal, we talk a bit about her background as an activist. Uh, she also worked as a forensic accountant and legal researcher. And throughout the interview, she credits her father's work as an attorney as a constant source of inspiration. She also recounts the tragic story of Brandon McLeod, 
a teenager who was gunned down in his bedroom in 2005. It's a story that touched Crenshaw personally. And she rightly points out that McLeod's murder was a ghastly premonition of what was to come with Brianna Taylor. As she begins to tell this story, I have intercut some footage of her walkthrough video of the scene of McLeod's death. It's titled Analysis of a Murder from her Chasing Justice YouTube channel, which I highly recommend. I just bring that up because it might not be immediately apparent for those of you listening to the podcast. Um, Be sure to check out, like I said, her channel for a lot more of the work she's done over the years. And I'll be using this interview and other discussions I've had with Crenshaw as the raw materials for an article. So subscribe to my newsletter at bzdouglas.substack.com to catch that when it lands. If you aren't already, please consider supporting me on Patreon so that I can spend less time doing the work, you know, coding websites and more time chasing justice. Yeah? You like that? You like that, Mariah? I... I hope she liked that. One last thing before we get started, for those of you in Cleveland, on Tuesday night, I'll be hosting a live stream panel discussion featuring Mariah Crenshaw, Kareem Henton of Black Lives Matter Cleveland, Keith Wilson of the People's Archive of Police Violence, and Yvonka Hall of the Coalition to Stop the Inhumanity at the Cuyahoga County Jail to discuss their recommendations for local and regional offices up for election. Pretty much everything but the one office nobody shuts up about. So uh, if you follow me on Facebook or YouTube, I'll be broadcasting on those platforms and I, I hope you'll be able to enjoy it. Hope you'll be able to join me. It's been a long intro, folks. So let's, uh, let's cut it off here. And thank you so much for listening. And now let's get on with the show. I'm speaking with uh, Mariah Crenshaw of Chasing Justice LLC, and we're going to be talking about your work uh, exposing the rampant lack of compliance with Ohio state law regarding training requirements for police officers in the state. Uh, But before we get to that, I wanted to go into your background a little bit as an activist and an advocate. Um, I was listening to uh, early episodes of your 2013 radio show. Uh, Was that called Ohio Communities United or was it a different name of a show, but that was your group? No, we were OCU Forum and it was through our organization, Ohio Communities United. Right. And so, um, yeah, I was trying to go through some of that. Uh, I was surprised to learn that you're actually an alien visiting from uh, Planet Do-Right. Yes, I am. <laughs> and so I, I, I tried to take in as much as your background as I could uh, to go through this, but it's a lot. So um, do you want to kind of run, run us through a bit of your uh, greatest hits and, and how you started in, in activism? Uh, my dad was the last African American criminal rights, um, criminal criminal defense civil rights attorney. You'll find attorneys who do one or the other, but not both. And so um, uh, I grew up, you know, in politics, and he was very, very big about uh, police accountability. And so, you know, and it's, I guess you could say it's just part of who I am now. Is um, for years, I've, I've dealt with um, all kind of social justice issues, police accountability, excessive force cases, um, you know, unjustified murders uh, by police officers. So um, I have a really, 
I guess you could say big background when it comes to doing with social advocacy. Um, I've done everything from housing foreclosures to lead paint to minimum wage, educational issues. So issues that, you know, affect us as a society, um, whether you're black, you're white, you're young, you're old, whether you're gay or heterosexual, um, we all suffer from the same societal um, issues. And so, or I should say ills. Um, so societal ills. And so uh, when people call me and say, hey, Mariah, can you help? Um, I have this, uh, this this mechanism like my dad had. Um, I have it really hard for me to say no, <laughs> especially when I see it's something that's really worth, um, uh, you know, attacking. So um, I've been doing my, I did my first protest in high school. And I gathered over 3,000 signatures um, from all of my classmates and schoolmates that I went to school with. Uh, they were going to um, transfer a very loved uh, assistant principal out of the school. And so my first protest was to gather every signature from every student in the school to protest him leaving, um, them transferring him. And so since I was about 16 or 17, I've been really actively engaged in, you know, trying to stand up for what's right and have that voice for community. So um, let's see, my background concerning uh, police, it, it, it goes back pretty far. Um, I've shared this with you before, but um, what really, really got me into dealing with police misconduct um, was that there was a young man, 15 years old, Brandon McLeod. He was killed in his bedroom by two Cleveland police officers. And it was one of the most egregious cases that I had ever, ever witnessed. Uh, my son was about the same age as Brandon at the time. And I remember laying in bed that morning and seeing it come on TV. And um, probably for that reason, I don't even turn the TV on in the morning anymore, to be honest, because getting your day started with that was just, it, it just was very traumatic for me. Um, and um, two police officers had walked into Brandon's home and they gunned him down in his bedroom. And over time, um, as we've seen time and time again, these two officers have never paid for what they did to Brandon. Um, it was found justified by a special prosecutor Brandon's backstory, um, I got close to the family after Brandon was killed. Um, it seemed like that morning Brandon's a spirit attached to me, and I just became this voice for him. Um, I, I talked to the grandmother multiple times, and she gave me some very sad background on Brandon. Um, and, and it's really, it's, it, it, he, that just made me want to do this even more because when you look at what happened to Brandon from birth and you look at all of the, um, the challenges that African-American males have in our society, Brandon really was doomed to die. Um, the way he died was not, you know, statistically how he would have died. Um, and so it, it, it was just sad. And then he may not have died. He may have ended up becoming a criminal rights defense attorney one day, who knows? Um, having his background. But the uh, story of Brandon is um, Brandon's mother and father were living together. And Brandon's mother got pregnant and she had already had two children with Brandon's father. And so um, she went to the hospital 
and had Brandon and left Brandon at the hospital and came back and told everyone that the baby had died. And she put him up for adoption. So social workers tried to locate his father before um, the baby could be adopted. And they ended up going to uh, Brandon's grandmother's house a couple of times. And I think probably the second time she said when the social worker showed up, she asked, um, you know, um, why do you keep coming here looking for my son? And she said, well, he has a baby and we cannot sever his parental rights until we, you know, we, we talk to him. So at that point, Brandon's grandmother actually lived next door to Brandon's maternal grandparents. And nobody knew that Brandon was alive. Everybody thought Brandon was a miscarried baby. And so she asked the court for, um, uh, to take Brandon and she took Brandon and she kept Brandon um, for seven years and his grandparents next door didn't even know that was their grandchild. They just thought it was someone that the grandmother, yeah, that the grandmother was adopting. Um, Brandon often played with his siblings and did not know they were his siblings and they did not know that he was their sibling. So this kid was really challenged from day one. And so as he got older um, and the truth came out about, you know, who he was, because Brandon's grandmother had moved to adopt him and his mother said, no, you, I don't want you to adopt my baby, which was like insane because she had left this baby at the hospital. And so Brandon ended up going back to stay with his, um, his biological parents for a very short period. Uh, the house had caught on fire and they were displaced. And so Brandon went to stay with his mom, his dad, and his siblings, and they treated him horribly. And he wanted to go back and stay with his grandmother. So she found another home. She took Brandon back and she did the best she could. She was a very, she's a very elderly woman. Um, and she was doing her best to raise him. And Brandon got out in the streets and he started robbing pizza delivery guys. And, you know, he was getting into some trouble, but he was not trying to kill anybody. He was just doing stupid young boy stuff. And he's 15 at the time. So um, there was a pizza delivery um, uh, call, you know, where someone had robbed a pizza delivery guy. And these two detectives that had had um, this, you know, relationship, they had known that, you know, Brandon was, was, you know, known for doing this. They decided without any evidence or anything else that they were going to go, you know, sit outside Brandon's home and wait for him. Well, they did. They must have known Brandon was already home. Um, so during the course of the night of them sitting outside, um, one of the officers, and I believe it was Kranick, was talking uh, to a uh, dispatcher and he, you know, the dispatcher says to him, if he runs, shoot him. And, you know, Kranick says back, yeah, you know, I'm going to shoot him. So there was a premeditation that was there. Um, they took all the way out to Westlake to our former, uh, he, was a, he was a judge at the time, but now he's a former county prosecutor, which is uh, Timothy McGinty. And so they drove all the way out to McGinty's house. Um, he was not a um, juvenile court judge. He was a county court judge. So they went where they knew they could get this subpoena, this warrant. And so they go out there in the middle of the night. They get it signed. They come back. And then they wait for someone to come out of the house. And so somewhere around 5 o'clock, Brandon's grandmother 
who can't weigh more than 100 pounds. She's a very tiny, very petite lady. She comes out the house to go to work and um, the, office, the detectives get out of the car. They walk into the house past um, Brandon's uncle who's standing in the living room and they said, is Brandon here? And he said, yeah. And from that point, they went upstairs into a dark house and they went directly to Brandon's bedroom. And within seconds, they had done him down. And they came down the steps and walked back outside um, like nothing had happened. Um, they called it in. Police came. Supervisors came. Media showed up. Um, I have all the pictures, the photos of the bedroom. Um, and I think you probably saw this on the Chase and Justice page. Um, Brandon's grandmother allowed me to go in the room. The room had been locked up since Brandon was killed. And she allowed me to go in and walk through so that people could see the scene that has been you know, basically she's kept it. She has preserved it all this time. He was obviously a very normal kid. He had a very messy room. Look at the TV. Look at the clock. Look at the fan and the telephone. Everything in the same place. There was an ironing board, to my recollection from the inquest, where I'm standing. So if you look where I'm standing here up against this wall, Take note, there was an ironing board here where Brandon had ironed his clothes for school for the next day. And two Cleveland police officers entered into this room at 5 a.m. while Brandon was asleep. The officer's testimony is that they were in fear of their lives. Two armed police officers in full body gear, trained with Glocks, were afraid for their lives. For two police officers to come into this room and be able to gun Brandon down. Keep in mind, one of the bullets entered the top of Brandon's head, which suggests that Brandon was in a position like this when he was shot. But the question I have is, look at this closet. This closet, the size of this closet, they said this child left out of this closet with a knife in his hand at 5 a.m. to attack two Cleveland police officers he wasn't expecting to be in his bedroom. Is that a reasonable thought process to you? This was actually the first day of school for him. And he had eaten dinner. He had steak the night before. There was a steak knife in the room. There was a dish in the room. And so um, it's believed that if you kind of like look through the photos that Brandon's body was moved um, from where they actually shot him. And if you were to look at the autopsy and the pictures, Brandon was shot in the top of his head. And so in order for someone to be shot in the top of your head, you have you know, in that, that position uh, where possibly he had sat up when they entered the room and they shot him. And so you can just, like I said, if you look at it, you can see it doesn't match up with the testimony of the detectives. Well, in any event, the, um, the, uh, the family sued the city of Cleveland. The family sued the detectives. Um, the city of Cleveland, for some strange reason, was eliminated from the lawsuit, and it just stood on the shoulders of the, piece of the police officers. And so there was a... Uh, uh, a judge who in the district court who um, wrote a beautiful third 30 page 
um, opinion that they should be held accountable for wrongful death. She, it's a beautiful piece of, of, of legal work. And um, very, very sadly, three appellate court judges wrote a 20-page opinion overturning her 50-page opinion and um, did not hold them responsible. So the city of Cleveland mayor at the time, Frank Jackson, he asked um, C. Ellen Conley, who had been a former judge and lawyer and well-known African-American female to um, you know, review the case and see if there was something criminal that happened, if they acted outside the scope of their responsibilities, their duties. Um, and she came back and said, no, they, you know, they did what they had to do. And so, of course, the community was even more in an uproar because you have an African-American um, woman who justifies it. But then she also admits that she did not read the transcript where the uh, detective um, said that, you know, he would shoot him if he ran which was a premeditation. There was a premeditation that was there and she admitted she did not read the transcript, which makes you wonder exactly how much of an examination did she do of this record to come to the conclusion that they had not acted lawfully. So Brandon's grandmother never received a dime in wrongful death um, from the city of Cleveland or these detectives. And to make it even worse, some of the past ministers who were supposed to be advocates really treated Brandon's grandmother horribly and said to her, um, you know, if you had raised him better, this wouldn't have happened, <laughs> which I thought was just atrocious, um, knowing that, you know, this kid at 15 is in his bed sleep and they walk into his room and they gun him down and you blame the grandmother. And so... I've kept my relationship with her. I call her. I go see her. Um, she's up in age. But um, she and I have a very good relationship. And she, you know, she often says to me that she's thankful I keep Brandon's name alive. Because it seems like with everyone protesting Black Lives Matter, nobody remembers Brandon. But I do. And so I always start out, whenever I talk about it, about Brandon McLeod. When uh, and when did this happen? Was this back in two thousand seven or eight? It was somewhere or, in that area. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of up in age, so years kind of get past me. But yes, it's been it's been quite some time um, since this happened. But it was, you know, Frank Jackson um, inherited this case um, under Jane Campbell. If memory serves me correctly, um, approximately 19 African-American men had been shot and several of them had been killed by Cleveland police at the time. And I think Brandon was probably number 18. I think there was one more person who was shot and killed after Brandon was killed. And the Cleveland police never paid for any of those deaths. They've always walked away. And we see this happening across the country. But my concern then and what I see now happening in our country is that Brandon's case set a president, a dangerous president, that police can kill you in your own home when you've done absolutely nothing um, and they can walk away. And we've seen that with the death of Breonna Taylor, um, Atiana, who was in her home in Texas when she was shot through the window. And so we see that 
there is this very eerie, ungodly um, force field around police <laughs> that allows them to do these things. And um, there's no regard for the human lives that are being lost, the, that are unarmed. You know, they have no defense. And so it's, it's a very dangerous president to continue to allow police to do this and not be held accountable. I had my own encounter with a Cleveland police officer who, you know, really could have killed me. And um, we ended up suing the city and because, you know, I, I, I took it to trial. They were like, well, if you if you plead guilty and go through the first offender you know, program, we, we'll drop the charges, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, because I didn't do anything. And I'm going to take this to trial. So we, we went to trial the first day. The judge threw out um, Judge Zone, who's on our municipal court. Excellent judge. Um, he threw out the first charge, which was a, a BS charge of interfering with police, uh, police uh, business or some crap like that. And then the second charge was disorderly conduct. And so um, we went to trial the first day and they, you know, they dismissed the first one. And, and the second day we go in and, um, you know, we went out of the courtroom for like less than five minutes after they, you know, closing arguments and the jury went out to deliberate. And um, the jury came back in less than five minutes and said not guilty. So they always laughed that that was like the quickest turnaround for any jury. Um, and so, you know, I exercise my rights and I tell people this all the time, exercise your constitutional right to be heard um, by a jury, um, especially in Cuyahoga County. And the reason I say that is because Cuyahoga County has the most wrongful conviction in the entire state of Ohio. And so my experience is that the Cuyahoga, and, and this is another thing too. So let me, let me, let me kind of throw this out there. My dad had a long history um, of fighting the Cuyahoga County prosecutor's office for wrongful convictions. Um, and, and he was, I mean, when I tell you, I have, so Brian, next time you come over, I'll show you some of this stuff. But he had a long, long, long history of fighting the county prosecutor um, for, you know, always like really sticking it to African-Americans and forcing them into these plea bargains and, you know, putting them in jail. And so he was very boisterous about that. And he, when I say headlines, 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 he kept those headlines. And so um we have you know we've gone through bill mason we've gone through mcginty and we are now at uh michael o'malley who is also uh you know part of that he's part of that family that my dad fought basically he's like the the third generation prosecutor that came up in that office who prosecutes people just so they can have high rates high numbers and so I always say to people, I know there are a lot of times where people are guilty. They are definitely guilty. If you, you know, if you get caught with the gun in your hand, it's on video, you got the blood on, you just go ahead and plead guilty, you did wrong. But there are so many people who are getting funneled through the Cuyahoga County um, process that are not guilty. And we have a prosecutor who is withholding exculpatory evidence from uh, judges and from criminal defense attorneys. Um, which could exonerate and, and really just nullify arrests 
that occur in Cuyahoga County. And it's not just here. It's all over the state of Ohio. But um, I always tell people, go to trial. Make them prove you did what they said you did. If you know you didn't do it, stand your ground. They don't have the evidence. And the worst thing a prosecuting attorney can hear is saying, we're going to go to trial. We're, we're, we're going to go to trial because it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. You've got to be able to prove it without any doubt in, in the jury's mind that this person is guilty. You have to have an abundance of evidence. And I've seen time and time again, the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office has no evidence against people when they take an indictment in. They have, they have no evidence. And, and it, that's egregious. Um, we want prosecutors to prosecute criminals. We don't want you to create criminals to prosecute. <laughs> so um, it's a huge, huge problem that needs to be addressed. Um, did you see the Supreme Court is trying to get prosecutors all throughout the state of Ohio to um, reverse these wrongful convictions and they're refusing to do it? No. They're very annoyed. They put together these Zoom meetings asking prosecutors to attend because there are wrongful convictions in the state of Ohio. And so as they're being brought, you know, through the process, they're asking these prosecutors to go back, look at these cases, reverse these prosecutions, um, stop sending people to, to prison that don't deserve to go to prison. Um, and they're refusing to do it. And so um, we can't get judicial reform if we don't have prosecutorial reform. And that's, you know, they're more interested in looking at their numbers. Hey, I got a 90% conviction rate. Um, It's not a conviction rate when you're getting people to plea bargain. That's not a conviction. What you have is you have someone plea bargaining. When you take someone to trial and you get someone convicted, that's a conviction rate. And so they're totally misled on, on, on even their own numbers. Um, But I know, I've seen it. I've seen cases where um, the prosecutor didn't have any video, no physical evidence, no motive, no witnesses, prosecuting people for murder, attempted murder. I've sat in those trials and juries have found them not guilty. And so you're talking about a misappropriation of funds that um, prosecutor's offices um, receive, you know, that's why are you prosecuting cases? You know, um, there's, they're not valid cases. There's like no integrity in the process. And the pressure for people to go into plea bargains that comes from both ends. Doesn't it? I mean, like, uh, as far as like the, the public, if someone has a public defender, I mean, it's one thing if you are in a position where you can have private counsel, but, uh, most people aren't. And with, you know, the over, I'm sure the overworked nature of it, but also just that it's sort of the status quo. Like you, you don't want to go to trial. Trust me, like coming from your, your attorney. Exactly. And so, um, you know, everybody wants Mariah to practice law, but I can't practice law because I would just not, I would, no, I can do it, but I couldn't do it. Um, because I would take everybody to trial. No, I would never be a plea bargain um, uh, the criminal defense attorney. And my dad was not either. My dad would say, he would say to his client, what do you want to do? And they would say, I want to go to trial. And he'd say, okay. Um, and he did a lot of pro bono work where he went to trial and he did not get paid. 
Um, and when he did get paid, he got like the minimal amount that's granted through, you know, the, the county to receive. And so he went into those courtrooms and he defended people according to what the Constitution says, that you, you have a right to due process. And we do know that they are overworked. We do know they are overwhelmed. And so that's an advantage for the prosecutor's office um, that, you know, everybody's under duress except the prosecutor. And so in my opinion, like I said, um, it takes a lot of work to do a, a trial, you know, um, on both ends, the, the criminal uh, defense as well as the prosecution. But I, I think that when we're talking about justice and we're talking about exercising constitutional rights, I don't believe in, in plea bargaining. I think that it, it's a violation of the Constitution because you're not exercising due process rights when you plea bargain a case out. And so, um, you know, if I did practice, I would not be that lawyer. I would go in and say, we're not going to argue about this. We're not going to talk about this. We're not going to come to court and have 10 pretrials prepare for trial. Let's use these 10 pretrials that normally happen in cases and let's prepare for trial because I'm going to go to the trial. Um, and Mariah's a good trial lawyer too, by the way. So um, I don't have any problem with taking something to trial and I do have my own cases and I've taken my own cases to trial and out of probably 25 cases, I've only lost two. So I think that's pretty good for a non-practicing attorney um, who's not afraid to take it, you know, take it all the way to the very end. Mm. Um, if, if I can do it, other lawyers can do it. Ultimately, I mean, you're living up to the the nickname that I first heard for you uh, when I, we were interviewing uh, Chris McNeil, who is uh, an attorney for Richard Hubbard III and uh, the Euclid documentary I'm working on. And uh, he's like, here, I got to put you on the phone with Bulldog. <laughs> And um, yeah, he calls me. He calls me bully. Bully, bully. You know, yeah, bully yeah, bully bulldog. Yeah, he calls me. Yeah, yeah. Bulldog. So that and that leads us to uh, this the story that I first uh, became aware of that you were working on that you're chasing down now um, regarding police officer training. Uh, how did you first become aware of this issue? You want to take us back to the beginning of where this started? So, um, okay, so I've always done um, police accountability, and I helped um, the Department of Justice to gather the information, which led to the current consent decree in Cleveland. And I still work with the commission. I go to the meetings. I try to keep up with go what's going on. And um, about three years ago, a little over three years, probably going into four years now, some of the residents from East Cleveland said that there was this one guy that they did not want to come back um, to East Cleveland. He had been in East Cleveland. He left. He went to Cleveland. So that's my territory. Um, and then they found out that he was leaving and coming back to EC. And so they could not obtain any records for this guy. And so, of course, I'm the records queen. I can I can find records that, you know, people um, have no clue ever existed. And so um, we started on this trek probably in December of 2017, maybe November, somewhere in that area, of trying to retrieve this guy's records. And we could not find them. And so um, we, we were, and, and then East Cleveland was totally non-cooperative of giving us the records. And so this started, you know, it started to really get annoying for me. 
Well, um, something I don't share too often, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but during the, this, this period of us trying to obtain these records, um, East Cleveland did a very unlawful, unconstitutional traffic stop on my grandson and arrested him. And so my daughter called me hysterical. I showed up at the scene. And lo and behold, who was the first person that I ran into? It was this guy. And so, of course, red flags are going up in my head because we've been researching him and investigating him for months. So it cannot be a coincidence that he's the lead, quote, detective who has, um, you know, created this, this, this bogus stop and snatched my 17-year-old 101-pound grandson out of the car and put high-powered rifles to his head, had their feet on his neck and his back, um, messed up his face. And... Um, so, you know, when I arrive, I'm, I'm at the scene, and so I'm, I'm an observer. I watch things that are going on around me, and something is not right. I've been, in, I've been in these situations. I've seen this before. Something's not clicking. Um, to make a long story short, we decided to uh, ask for more records from the city of East Cleveland. And before we knew it, um, after talking to some of the, quote, detectives, um, and other peace officers, they're like red flags going up everywhere talking to these guys. It's like, you can't be a cop. You know, I've been in law enforcement, um, around law enforcement, lawyers, judges um, for my whole life. And so I can tell when somebody's not right. And so um, started pulling everyone's records. Denise Cleveland was refusing to give us the records. So I went to the state. And I asked the state to give me their appointment histories and any other information that they had on these guys. And so we started pulling um, all of their previous departments that they held appointments at. And so this one guy was at the Cahaw County Sheriff's Department. And I don't believe they meant to send me this. I think this was surely accidental that they sent this to me. Uh, but I received what's called a cease function letter. And um, I'm reading this and like my whole face like cringe, like what is going on here? Um, I'd never seen this. I never heard my dad walk into the office or home or whatever and say, daughter, he wasn't supposed to been out there. He was on cease function. He would have known this if, it, if, if he had ever seen this and he would have used it to um, defend his clients. So I knew this was an unknown um probably the best quietly kept secret in, you know, terms of the legal community. And so of course I started calling lawyers and I started talking to them and I'm like, Hey, you ever heard of seats function? And they're like, no, what are you talking about? And so getting a lot of no's, what are you talking about? Confirmed to me that if they did not know, my dad couldn't have known. And so this is something I started looking into. Um, I started calling my police officer friends and talking to them, and they started running it down to me. They started explaining what it means to be in cease function. Um, if you don't have um, what's called a continued professional training uh, mandate, and you're no longer a police officer, you're not engaged in law enforcement, um, you, you are not supposed to be out on the streets. So to kind of capsize all of this, um, we started finding multiple cease function letters for persons who were operating in East Cleveland. 
We also found that East Cleveland has a lot of people who work there. The state does not know that they're working there. They never reported them to the state of Ohio um, that they that they were holding an appointment and acting as peace officers and that those persons did not have training for 10, 12 years. So there are a lot, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on in East Cleveland um, that goes way beyond the criminal stuff, um, you know, from the public. Um, so um, we started like, again, so we asked the state of Ohio to do an audit on East Cleveland to confirm our findings because our findings were that none of these guys were really policed under Ohio law. So in, they do this bit and they come back and they say, yeah, you guys have to pay back. Um, um, you've got to pay back the reimbursement funding because you guys didn't take the training. So what does that mean? It, it simply means that when they don't take the training, they go into what's called cease function. And so they have no legal authority to engage in law enforcement. They have no legal authority and they are prohibited by law from continuing. Now, the bad part is that Opata has no legal authority to come down and arrest them, take their guns from them, because it's not well, let's, in the code. And let's stop and uh, just spell out Opata, what Opata Ohio is for, for anyone. Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy, Opata, Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy. Um, the commission, or it might be OPOTC or OPOTA, depending on which you're referencing. And so um, they have no legal authority to come down, the uh, the way the code is written, it is the personal responsibility of the peace officer and his chief to remove him from engaging in law enforcement. And so what we're finding, um, so now of course this went to a whole broader scale of investigating. We found that OPADA does not audit departments. Um, they send, you know, they receive these Excel spreadsheets with the officer's name on it. It's a simple yes or no. Did he take the training? And they never go down to the department and say, give us those certificates. We want to see those certificates. Or better yet, they're not enforcing the part of the code that requires that training certificates be uploaded to OPADA within 30 days of completing. And now, so all the, does all the training, though, coming, is all the training supposed to be coming from OPADA, like this is all training that they took or is it come, okay. do they get training elsewhere? Cause if it's all like OPADA is where the training comes from, it's crazy that they don't have that information. It's okay. gotta be so reported it's, to them. It's, it's, it's the whole thing is crazy. So let's throw that out there. The whole thing is crazy. Um, there are certain ways that they can get trained. So there's three types of training police can take. There's elective training. That's training they can go take. It could be firearms, it could be whatever. It's elective training. Um, then there's an annual training, which they're supposed to take up to 24 hours every calendar year, whether there's reimbursement funding or not. And that would fall into the continued professional training categories, which would be continuations of what they took when they were in basic training. So that would be domestic violence, crime victims and families, trauma and policing. There's a whole gambit um, of training that they would, they're required to take. And then there's the advanced training. So the advanced training is um, where, let's say you want to be a firearms instructor. You go take this training, advanced training, so you could be a firearms instructor. Well, that's the only real training that OPADA tracks. 
because they actually have to go to London, Ohio, or they have to go to Richfield and take that training. So um, the other training, which I'm going to call elective, um, is online training, which Opata was offering free courses to peace officers, which were probably the worst things on the planet for multiple reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that um, the online certificates are bogus. They do not meet the uh, Ohio Administrative Code 109-1803 for continued professional training. Um, under that code, uh, there has to be a pre-approved curriculum. There has to be a pre-approved lesson plan. There has to be a pre-approved instructor to teach the classes, and it has to be in a classroom setting. And so back in like 2007, uh, Betty Montgomery, our attorney general at the time, she wrote an opinion. It's a standing opinion where she clearly says um, that, you know, you can use all the technology you want. Back then it was videotapes. So, <laughs> you know, how old that is. Um, you could use all the technology you want to, but it can, you can't just put a police officer in front of a video and call it continued professional training or in-service training or specialized training. He has to have an instructor standing in front of him and, and telling him. And so um, along come the Republicans and they take over the state and they don't do a whole lot of overwatch. And um, they appoint a woman by the name of Mary Davis to be the executive director of Opata. And so Mary Davis comes up with this brilliant idea to let peace officers and troopers take the training online. And um, the classes... So according to the code, um, the 109-1803, these classes not only have to be in a classroom setting, but they also have to meet a minimum of 55 minutes to get a one-hour credit. So these online classes are like three minutes long, and she's giving people an hour, sometimes in some instances, four hours of credit. And no, it, no sane person is going to sit there and take a three-minute class and really believe that they're, they're getting four hours of credit for this. And if they do think that, they really should not be wearing a gun and a badge. They should know something is wrong and that I am deficit in my training. It's a, it's a common sense kind of thing. And so Mary Davis was letting them take these classes and they were submitting these CPT rosters in January of every year saying that they took, quote, other than online training, but they weren't. And so that's what brings us to where we are today. Um, we're pulling, uh, we sent out over a thousand public information requests to every single law enforcement agency in the state of Ohio. Um, requesting all of their CPT rosters and all of their supporting documentation to see if they've been compliant since 2007 when the laws changed governing uh, training and legal authority. So we've gone through several of them. Um, four departments, which on my Facebook page, I have, you know, openly praised with the way that they train and they do their, their record keeping. Um, Westfield OFIC got the first certificate from us stating that they had excellent training and excellent record keeping and they very they turned it around really quick when we asked for the records. Um, you have uh, Orange Village who I think is an excellent role model for every police department in the state of Ohio and possibly the country. Um, Orange Village trains all of their peace officers to be paramedics as well as firefighters. 
And wow. so they're well-rounded. Yes, they are excellent. I mean, I'd like to spend, I'm like, wow, why can't I see this all the time? And they've got training certificates I've never seen before. Um, they are well above and beyond trained to uh, make sure that their, their community is safe. And so very, very proud of Orange Village Police Department. Um, Goshen Township with Captain Don ha Donald Hampton, uh, excellent training, excellent training records. Um, and who else? Uh, the Morgan County training records. But the sad part is we're not seeing this in other departments. Um, I've only mentioned four. And there are um, departments that are responding saying we have no records. They're saying we did everything online. Um, we have using give us up in with these departments um, seeking those records. Well, we know they don't have them. So we're, you know, we're going to be honest about it. When they tell us, we know they don't exist. But our overall goal at the end of the day is to hold them accountable. Um, if they have received funds, reimbursement funds from the state of Ohio, for training that they did not take and they cannot prove, we want that money back. Um, we want the attorney general to step in and shut some of these departments down that don't have legal authority to engage in law enforcement because they don't have the training. We want the rules that were instilled in 2007 enforced. And so because there's been a, a huge ignorance as to what the rules were until Ms. Mariah came along, um, a lot of people are having conversation. I'm getting calls from law directors. I'm getting calls from mayors who are now concerned because this is a huge, huge financial disaster waiting to happen. Why do I say that? Well, there are a couple reasons. Under that code, the civil penalties fall directly on the police officer. And under that code, qualified immunity does not exist. And the reason it does not exist is because you're not a police officer anymore and qualified immunity is only for police officers. So under the state of Ohio, if you don't have that mandated training, you are not a police officer. You are literally impersonating a police officer and you are open now to be um, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, but you're also open to civil liabilities. And it brings civil liabilities to the municipalities, the villages, the corporations that have these guys there because now their qualified immunity is gone too. Yeah. So Ohio actually has written the best undermining qualified immunity legislation that could possibly exist in the country. Now, from what you can see, what, what percentage of officers in Ohio are ceased function? Is there a range that you think we're looking at? Um, I'm looking at probably about 40%, maybe 60% wow. um, of officers, um, especially uh, the lower part of Ohio, because you have a lot of very small departments. They cannot afford training. Um, so they kind of just bypass it and, you know, hope nobody pays attention. Nobody looks. Um, the problem I have with that is that those guys that are in those small departments come up here to Cleveland, they come up here to Cleveland Heights, they come up to where there are African-American communities and you see a greater 
percentage of racial profiling, discrimination, excessive force, other police misconduct occurring because you have officers coming from Southern Ohio who have never taken training, but on their Opata record, they have all these appointments. They've worked in these different departments. So when they come up here, you know, they're looking at their Opata records like their resume, basically. And um, we also found down in um, Amsterdam, I don't know if I shared that one with you, but in Amsterdam, Ohio, um, and this links us back to the East Cleveland probe that we did, a uh, really small little itty bitty village, not more than 500 people down there. Um, this guy, David Simperman, was an auxiliary officer in East Cleveland. And so he ends up in um, Amsterdam, Ohio, as the chief of police. And so um, he's there for a couple of years, and he puts 17, maybe 18 East Cleveland police officers on the agency roster and gives them appointments with the state of Ohio. Now, they've never worked there. They've never lived there. He distributed guns. He distributed um, IDs. He distributed um you know, all the paraphernalia that goes along with being a police officer um, to these 17 or 18 people in East Cleveland, but it was other departments as well, like New Philadelphia and Farmington. They were all kind of in on this, this thing. So what he did was when he submitted what's called an SF-400 form, which is an appointment form that they submit to Apata, he submitted it and he forged the mayor's signature on it as the appointing authority for um, these 17 people. And so, um, yeah, I find out all kind of great stuff, Brian. You just have no clue. And so um, so he, he forged it and he submits it to Apato. Apato never realizes that Amsterdam um, went from having three patrol officers, police officers, including the chief, to like having 35 people on a roster of 500 and that all these people from East Cleveland, which was an hour and a half to two hours away from Amsterdam is on this roster. So Apata never picked up on that. It's like, come on guys, you gotta be kidding me here. Um, and you know, the officers in Amsterdam got paid like $10 an hour. So who's gonna drive two hours from East Cleveland to Amsterdam to make 10 bucks an hour? Come on now, that's not even, it doesn't even make sense. But that goes to the lack of oversight that's happening at the state level. Zipperman sends out all this stuff and he gives everybody titles, corporal, marshal, lieutenant, a, a, a deputy. He gives all these bogus titles out and then he submits these rosters to Opata saying that everybody took their training. And so Opata doesn't go back and look or ask for any documentation to show that they, that they took the training. So. This guy was taking money out of the village and he was writing grants and getting grant money and going to Las Vegas on it. And he was buying cars with, yes, this guy was like really totally, nobody was watching him. He was sending out letters to other departments asking if they had extra equipment they could use. And he was using the village, like their, their bank account, finance account, and he was purchasing equipment for a private security company up here called Tenable. And so um, he, he, something happens where he ends up leaving Amsterdam and when he leaves, he takes the cars with him. And so 
the guy that was the chief before, Todd Walker, who had been the chief prior to, to Semperman, he came back because the mayor called him and said, hey, I need your help. So he comes back and he goes in and finds there's not one piece of paper in the file cabinet. There's nothing on the hard drive. This guy has wiped out everything. So he sends off, he sends off to Opata and he asks, you know, I need an agency roster. I need SF400 forms. I have nothing here. I'm empty. And so Pata, he asked BCI to come in. BCI came and got the computer. Um, they weren't able to find a whole lot um, that this guy had done. But um, that's how I met Todd Walker was I had sent a public records request to Amsterdam for a specific person's records. And he calls me and he says, Mariah, I can't give you anything. There's nothing here. And so he starts gathering information and he starts sending it to me. And when I tell you this is a criminal organization, you better believe me when I tell you this is a criminal organization that has come out of East Cleveland and has reached into other parts of Ohio. Um, he had to put out like this statewide bulletin that if they found anybody with an Amsterdam gun, Amsterdam gun ID confiscated immediately and he started so he sends in all of these termination forms to the state of Ohio to get all these people off of the roster and they start sending the SF 400 forms and that's where he sees that they've all been forged so um, you know it, it, it's like this stuff is insane where does the buck stop you're right where does the buck stop who starts holding these people accountable so that's kind of where Mariah came in um, the um the code that is used for peace officers allows for civil liabilities but it there's nothing to say as criminal liabilities can't happen either and so Maria, using that little brilliant brain of hers um i and someone else i um under ohio revised code 2935.0809 and 10 which allows private citizens to make a, a, a citizen's arrest. Um, we filed against the entire East Cleveland Police Department. We filed an injunction to shut that department down um, and to hold them accountable and hopefully send a message throughout the entire state of Ohio that if you're going to operate like this, then we're going to use the rules and the codes because you are literally impersonating a police officer. You don't have legal authority to engage in law enforcement. You are costing millions and millions of dollars to taxpayers um, that can never be paid out of that poor little city. That poor little city will never be able to pay out $50 million lawsuits that are happening. Um, so we, we, we got the judge, the first judge on the case. He determined felonies existed. He sent that over to the Cahoe County Prosecutor, Michael O'Malley, who's done absolutely nothing with it. He has not brought one indictment. Um, and we are supposed to move forward on the misdemeanors um, to to uh, establish what misdemeanors exist. Well, I feel like we've already won because felonies exist, and that's the bigger um, holding them criminally negligent. Um, entering into criminal justice information systems are felonies. Um, going in and taking the online classes with Opata, those are felonies. Um, and so we've been pushing for Michael Malley to stop prosecuting cases that are coming out of East Cleveland because they don't have legal authority. Um, have I gotten some blowback? 
as you said earlier, uh, any lawyer who brings this in is going to receive some type of blowback from the legal community in some kind of way. Um, and so, yes, my family, my team has suffered uh, really severe attacks from, um, from the East Cleveland Police Department and Law Department um, because of our stance in trying to hold them accountable. But somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to, to make that stand and, and put that, you know, say, look, enough is enough. You cannot continue to kill us with impunity and no accountability. It's just not acceptable. It's, it, we, it has to stop. Um, it's, it's something that um, I kind of think that got to set at my feet because there are so many other lawyers that should have and could have done this. Um, but I think the advantage of me not practicing law is that I haven't fallen into that um, same mundane, everyday, this is how you do it, this is the process, you walk through the process. So my mind is not narrowed. I have a very wild, wide field um, of being able to see the bigger picture. And so, you know, maybe that was the reason why God didn't want me to practice law was so that I could be able to do and see what I'm seeing and be able to present that picture as I walk into courtrooms. Um, I actually, Brian, I testified as a, um, a, a expert on this matter about two weeks ago um, for the first time. And um, I've had lawyers call me and ask me to walk them through it. And um, they've now, they're now hiring me as a consultant on this issue. And so um, the, the police are calling me the foremost leading expert in terms of police training, um, the issue that's going on here. And I have, when I say the full support of so many chiefs of police throughout the state of Ohio, um, who knows what's going on with Opata and what they've been doing is wrong and they want change. So when people say police don't want change, what are, what are the good guys? The good guys are really getting beat up by the bad guys on the inside. And so now I'm kind of that voice. I'm kind of that voice for the good guys who can't come out, who can't do this, who can't fight the way that, you know, this fight needs to be done. And I'm hoping at some point I can become that bridge between those police officers who want to do the right thing and Black Lives Matters. I'm hoping that everybody can come together and see we have the same enemy, which is the state. The state is our enemy, not each other. They're keeping us fighting, so we're not paying attention to what they're doing up there. And so we've got to bring it full circle back around, and we have to say, look, we need to support the police to get the training that they need to get and stop the state from misappropriating funds to train these officers appropriately if we're going to keep police. Okay. That's, that's really surprising that chiefs that chiefs are blindsided by this. They are. They they're very much so. Um, I I spoke to a chief yesterday. He called me about my public records request. He is the chief of the chiefs association, and he was bragging to me. And he said, "I'm going to be teaching the new chiefs class next month." And I said, "Good. Are you going to be teaching them that you need to be?" sending up your training certificates within 30 days of finishing it so that you can get credit and reimbursement for those classes. And he said, what are you talking about? How are you going to teach somebody to be a chief when you don't even know what the rules say? I said, you didn't know. He was like, no. I said, that's the problem. No one's reading the rules. No one's enforcing the rules. And so when Mariah comes along and says, hey, 
Are you going to turn in your certificates every 30 days? You're looking at me cockeyed crazy. Like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the rule says you're supposed to send those certificates up. And the way it's supposed to work is that if they send the certificates up every 30 days of an officer completing his training to OPADA, it will be recorded on that officer's individual record. And at the end of the year, when those CPT rosters are submitted, they, the, the certification officer would look at it and she'd say, okay, Officer Friendly was reported as having 20 hours of training. She pulls up his record and see only 10 hours was submitted. He is an automatic cease function. He has to, he has to be removed from law enforcement. What we're also finding is that Opata is not telling anyone else other than prosecutors and the chiefs of police that these guys are police. They're supposed to be telling the mayors, right? I mean, aren't they supposed to be telling the mayor? Correct. Yes, they're supposed. Now, the letters say that they CC the mayors, but I'm talking to mayors who have never seen a cease function letter. So just because it says CC doesn't mean that they're actually receiving those documents. And so, you know, this is a prime example of police policing themselves. Because everyone that's in Opata is a police officer. And so we're talking about no oversight. And the people who are oversighting are not oversighting. And so, you know, it, it, where does it end? So this chief says this to me. He didn't know. But you know now. Okay. Um, what else didn't you know? How are you going to walk in and tell someone how to be a chief of police? when you aren't even up to date on what it means and what kind of rules have to be enforced um, for those officers, um, which kind of brings me back to the case that I testified in. And it broke my heart, Brian. I'm going to be honest with you. It broke my heart. Um, I actually had to tell a young man, you have not been a peace officer since 2014. And I thought he was going to cry. I said, the records that were supplied to me reflects you have not had the, he had tons of canine training, tons and tons of canine training, but he had absolutely no training in domestic violence, crimes and victims and family. He had none in trauma for policing, no constitutional uh, uh, practical use of application or de-escalation. He had no mental illness um, de-escalation training. I said, and I said to him, I said, son, you're about the same age as my son. He said, wow, I can't believe that. I said, no, really, you're about the same age as my son. And I, I'm talking to you like I would say this to my son. You need to get off the streets because your life is in danger. You know, officers get killed on traffic stops all the time. There's always something that happens on a traffic stop. You have not been properly trained to be a traffic stop officer. And they've got you out here. They're not doing you a favor. They are not helping you. I said, and when the prosecutor knew this, when we went into this hearing, he knew this prior to going in. He still prosecuted um, the young man and the magistrate. He kind of it was kind of funny. The magistrate said he's only going to charge him $50 for the speeding violation and throughout the other. And so I told the young man, I said, they didn't do you a favor in there because they just opened you up for a civil lawsuit and all the damages that he suffers. He can get recoup them from you. 
And he looked at me and said, what? I said, this is the problem. Um, I said, have you ever seen your training file? He said, no, I've never seen what's in it. And um, I said, well, maybe you should see your file. Um, about an hour before we went into there, uh, into this hearing, I got the records for Kelly Stillman, um, who was the chief of police that reported this young man every year to the state as having his mandated training. He had no training either. Like, that's a surprise, right? No. Um, but when you have chiefs of police who don't care about their own training, you can't expect them to care about the training of the men and women who are under their, um, under their guidance. And so, it, you know, it, it's something that we have to start talking to our mayors, our council, that they need to start looking at this training issue as a major factor in determining who they're going to allow to be the chiefs of police over their department. Because if you don't know, you know, you're going to act out of ignorance. But once you get educated and you know um, what's going on, you need to start implementing the rules and the laws and the codes at the municipal level, which will protect the lives not only of the residents, but also of the peace officers. Because if you're going to have them out there and you want to be able to have them police your community, why aren't you equipping them properly to do that? So... In the case of East Cleveland, East Cleveland had to pay back over $10,000 for years 15, 16, and 17 that they didn't take the mandate training. Um, they're still out there. So all the stuff that you're seeing on social media where they're, they're you know, the, look, they're driving from one municipality all the way across town chasing people and crashing cars. You think they have training? Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that? Um, it, it's something that we have to start, because that's all they care about anyway is money. We have to start looking at this in the long run. How much is this going to be costing municipalities as this information gets out and someone calls me and says, hey, Mariah, um, I got a ticket. And, you know, did this guy have his training? I can say, no, how much was your ticket? Well, they, they towed my car and I had to pay $1,000 to get my car back. Well, now you can actually sue that police officer and you can sue the city who has no qualified immunity for leaving him out there and exposing you to that person. And now you have the right to recoup the, the, the private assets of the police officer. So you can attach his home, you can attach his car, and if he has a cute little dog that you like, you can get that too. And so getting this information out, trying to talk to lawyers, trying to talk to you know judges, trying to tell them, you guys are actually the ones who are the constitutional rights violators because the these guys are, don't have the authority to engage in law enforcement. So who's actually, um, you know, um, violating the rights of the people is the city prosecutor, the county prosecutor, and the judges. And so now it's going to end up, you're going to end up getting sued for violating those constitutional rights. And what are you going to say? Because you already told these guys are not police. And you still allow those cases to move forward in your courtrooms. So this is huge, 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 huge now, in if, the state of Ohio. If someone, uh, if someone wants to find out if they were arrested by an officer in cease function, uh, how would they go about that? Well, you could contact me. Um, I'm easy to contact. 
Um, you contact me on Facebook, Mariah Crenshaw. Um, you can, you can, you know, you can get me through the Chasing Justice page, LLC on Facebook. Um, you can call me. I'm always available, 216-438-0761. And so what we're doing is we are compiling the records of every peace officer in the state of Ohio from every single department. There are over 34,000 peace officers in the state of Ohio, approximately one, let me think, it's about 1,000 police agencies, law enforcement agencies, and we're demanding, we're, we're requesting all their records. And so what we're hoping to do and what we're in the process of trying to do as we accumulate this data is to create a database so that if someone calls and says, hey, Mariah, with Officer Friendly and C's function, um, we cannot depend on the state's records because the state is not recording it. They're not tracking it. They're not making a determination of who actually has legal authority. So we're going to use the state rules to make that determination. And so what we're going to do, um, like we did in the case last week, is that we, we got all of the records, the historical documents from every department um, that these officers have been at, and we compile it all together and we go through it and say, okay, did he have blah, 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 and we check it off if he did, we exit if he did not, and we create like a little mini report that we put an affidavit with to say that our findings um, show that this officer has been in legal seats function since whatever date, and in that instance, it was 2014. Um, so if he's still out there right now, um, he's still operating unlawfully and he is prohibited it, it clearly says prohibited um from functioning in law enforcement uh, law enforcement carrying a firearm and so um the end goal is to get this information out and to help people to file those lawsuits because once we start inundating the courts with a, a, a mirage of these complaints Who's going to start being responsible and holding these police accountable for the millions of dollars that are going to end up coming out of municipalities and even possibly the state for um, not oversighting police and not oversighting um, who's in these function and not removing these people from um, from from our society because they should not be here. And again, Ohio has probably the best um legislation which undermines qualified immunity so when you're hearing all this in qualified immunity it doesn't exist here under that code only if that particular officer has his mandated training gives him legal authority to engage in law enforcement and we're not seeing that um, a whole lot um, with the records that we have been pulling do you so, have any fears with I mean something this this big and this seismic um, and widespread that they're going to try and do some sort of thing to just retroactively be like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and some way to just uh, sweep all this under the rug and, and, and say like, oh, our bad, but we're not going to let everybody sue every police officer for every arrest they made while they were in cease function because it'll bankrupt the state. The law is nice and all, but uh, no. Well, first of all, um, our state legislature has to pass that, and we know how long it takes to get stuff through the state legislature, right? Um, and, and at this point, they can't undo the 2007 mandates requirements up until the point they may be able to, like, throw something in, you know, maybe it'll be a cutoff from 2017 or 2018 up until whenever they do pass it. But you have to remember 
There are two things that are. Let's say Officer Friendly stopped uh, being a, a, under the law. He stopped being a, a police officer in 2014. The rules in the law say that he has to go back to basic training after two years of being out of compliance. And the other rule states that um, if it's less than two years, he has to take what's called a refresher course to be back in compliance. But they also have to have a letter from the executive director reinstating them, saying that, yes, they can operate as peace officers. So in order to get rid of this code um, and try to do some kind of retroactive something, they'd have to literally eliminate the entire code and void it out, which I can't see um, our state legislature being able to do that. They wouldn't have, you know, I would take them to the district court and, and fight that because you can't eliminate an entire code that's been on the books since 2007. And you have departments that have done the training. So it would be different if every single department in the state of Ohio had negated the responsibilities and the duties to take that training. But that's not the case. You have responsible departments and chiefs who are ensuring that those officers are getting their mandated training. So it makes it harder for a judge, it makes it harder for a legislature to come up with something that, you know, well, as of 2018, but you still have the period from 2007 to 2017 where the mandates were required. And under the law, your statute of limitation does not begin until you find out so let's say that, that Officer Friendly did this to you in 2014, you paid all this money out, you went to court, you might have even gone to jail, but you didn't find out until October 14th of 2020 when you heard Miss Mariah talking about this, then your statute runs from now until October 14th of next year for you to file a lawsuit. So unless they're going to change that statute too, okay, um, but this is definitely something that it, it's going to shake this system to its core. And you have prosecutors and the state of Ohio trying to still kind of find a way to cover it up and hide it. And now that I sent out these public records requests, the cat's out the bag. The cat is definitely out the bag. Um, I'm getting calls from city prosecutors. I'm getting calls from law directors and safety directors. What are you, you know, I know I'm not supposed to ask you, but what are you doing? And so um, I'm saying to them, you know, this is what's going on and your department might not be legal, have legal authority to be engaging in law enforcement. And you need to know that um, because it's a well-kept secret. And only the prosecutors have known, only the law enforcement um, chief, the peace officer, know. Um, the other part of that too is that some peace officers really don't know because they leave it up to their chief to tell them what kind of training they're supposed to be getting. And so, like the young man two weeks ago, he didn't know he was supposed to have 20 hours of training. He didn't know he was not supposed to take the training online. He didn't know, he relied on his chief to tell him so I think a lot of these guys that have relied on their chief to guide them have been misled um, by their chief and the chief has been misled by the state. And so um, I think it's just a big ball 
of 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 yarn that looks like a little kitten got a hold to and how do you you know how do you unwind all this stuff um you have to take it piece by piece case by case in order to deal with it um right now we're fighting in the Cuyahoga County um with the prosecutor's office because we have an expectation that he must in start you know handing down indictments or assign a special prosecutor or send it to the attorney general for prosecution um, but you cannot continue to allow these guys to be out here and they're, they're not just killing, you know, they're not just arresting people, they're killing people. And so that has to come to a stop. But now we need to hold the people over the police responsible and accountable for what's happening. So that, that's the end game is to make sure that, um, that um, the people who have the authority and the ability to protect the public from bad actors is, you know, fulfilling their duty. Um, so I don't know if I shared this with you, but we are working on the affidavits um, for uh, Matthew Rhodes. We want the case of um, Luke Stewart to be resubmitted to a grand jury based on the fact that Matthew Rhodes does not have any legal authority to engage in law enforcement. He hasn't been a peace officer since I think 2015. I'm going to say somewhere in 2015, according to the records we've obtained. Um, and so we're going to be filing those affidavits demanding that he be arrested and prosecuted for Luke Stewart's death. Um, we're also working on uh, affidavits for uh, Sean Williams, who killed John Crawford in Walmart in Beaver Creek. He did not have his training. And um, so we're not going after the whole state. We're going after bad actors. We're going after people who don't have legal authority, who continue to take the lives of unarmed African-Americans and others, excessive force cases, um, who feel like they don't have to abide by the law or the rules. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that um, we find out that they, they actually relied on their chiefs to guide them in terms of their training um, because we are going to be asking for dereliction of duty um, charges to be brought against those chiefs that have not um, done what they were supposed to do. So, you know, this is a pretty big project. Um, we're working on it. Um, I've had people say to me, well, aren't you afraid they're going to kill you? I'm afraid they're going to kill me for running a red light. So I would much rather... Um, you know, I'd much rather die doing this than, um, you know, a traffic violation um, or, you know, loose cigarette or, you know, um, what is it, Skittles or, you know, just anything um, other than um, what I'm doing right now. Um, I would rather face this type of adversity and these type of dangers trying to get the problem fixed, trying to have a resolution. So. Um, I, I work, you know, I work with a great team of people. Um, I do. I work with a great team of people who are dedicated. And, you know, if anything happens to me, hopefully they'll stay dedicated and that it will motivate them to keep this moving forward. And um, it's not easy. It's not easy uh, pulling the records, looking through the records, creating a report, looking at, you know, what's going on here and who did what and trying to figure out, well, this guy's a new chief and the old chief didn't keep records and the old chief didn't care if they took training. And, you know, all those things we have to take into factors if we're going to decide to file lawsuits and if we're going to decide to, um, um, you know, file affidavits for the arrest of certain individuals. 
And so it's a lot of work, but you have to be dedicated and you have to know that there is a certain danger that comes along with it. Um, my team has been, when I tell you my team has been attacked, my team has been attacked. And um, we got another, another trial coming up you might want to be there for. Um, one of my team members got arrested about three or four weeks ago, maybe a month ago, by the same person in East Cleveland that kicked all of this off. <laughs> okay. Um, hey, stop digging. Cute. Stop digging a hole, man. Stop digging a hole. Yeah. Um. This guy arrested one of my team members for cursing. What? Yeah. Under what possible contortion of the interpretation of the law is that possible? When you don't have training, <laughs> okay, um, you just think that you can do what you, and nobody's ever stopped him. Nobody's ever, you know, all this stuff that's going on, nobody stopped him. So he's been emboldened to continue his bad behavior. And so, um, you know, he arrested him and threw him in that horrible, ungodly, uh, thing they call a jail in East Cleveland. I don't know if you saw the pictures, but it's just, oh my God, it's ungodly. Um, 68 violations from the state of Ohio. Um, the uh, county health inspector said it was, it, was, it was bad. Nobody should be held there. And they're still arresting people. Again, back to your county prosecutor. He's aware of all of this and he's allowing citizens to be subjected, whether they're guilty or not, He's allowing citizens who have constitutional rights to be subjected to the conditions of that jail and to persons who are literally impersonating police officers. And so, um, yeah, so he, he told the judge that he wanted to take it to trial because he, uh, he charged him with disorderly conduct. And so he's taking it to trial and we'll be there in, I guess, a few weeks. We'll be taking this trial and presenting it to the East Cleveland judge to see um, how he's going to handle the fact that this guy is not a police officer. He has not been a police officer. And I have his cease function letter. Okay. <laughs> to January of 2018, he has a cease function letter. He has no reinstatement letter um, from the executive director. And so um, we want to see how this judge is going to handle this. And um, if he does not handle it appropriately, uh, we will file in complaints with the Supreme Court as to the way that he's handling this. And um, we'll be turning it over to the Department of Justice for investigation. Um, we're going to continue to file, 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 and put pressure on everybody who has the authority to fix policing in the state of Ohio. And so, you know, if you're going to hit us, we're going to hit you back. Well, like we um, determined. For I, I, for anyone who's been listening to this and and feeling some fire under their seat and not intimidated by your last story, um, and they want to stand up and and help out, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, uh, and what what sort of skills do people might not even realize they have that could be applied towards chasing justice? Um, we we need people who are organized. If you're organized, then you can do this in your sleep. Um, really, it, it just takes somebody who can um, look at the paperwork, know how to organize it, which we, we would teach people. We teach people how to organize. Um, if you want to be part of that, part of the team that's going to be filing these lawsuits and these injunctions and these, you know, cease uh, uh, function 
um, affidavits where we want, you know, we're going to be asking for certain departments to be shut down. We want injunctions to be placed on those departments until they are brought compliant. Um, and, and, and to, you know, we have to really have to be aggressive. Um, you know, you laughed about it, but Chris called me, he calls me a bully. Um, he calls me that bulldog. Um, Chris, Chris thought I was like this really cool laid back person. Cause he's always around me and I'm like really cool laid back and he'd never been in court with me. And so we went to a hearing together and, um, he saw the lawyer Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> we walked out of court and we were walking down and he had this expression. I wish I could tell you what kind of expression he had on his face, Brian. But he looks at me, he was like, Oh my God, you are a bully. And I started laughing. He's like, You're a bulldog. And I just started laughing. I was like, I told you, you know, um, you have to go on the court and you have to be confident. You have to know. Um, you know, have to know your law, you have to know your material, you have to know, you have to know it better than anybody else in that room. And that's this for me. I know this subject matter. Um, the new judge in our case, we had a, uh, we had a phone conference. And um, I said to the judge, I said, you know, he says, well, Ms. Crenshaw, that's, a, that's an administrative code. I said, no, sir, 109.801, 802.803, which governs police training and requirements. Um, they, they violated the law. And he says, no, 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 there's no revised code 109.803. There's no, that's an administrative code. I said, no, sir, it is not. It is a revised code. No, 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 no. The revised code started 2900. I said, no, sir, they started 33. Um, and I'm talking about 109.801, 802, 803. And we get off of this conference call, I'm going to email it to you. So, I'm talking to a judge. <laughs> well, judges, judges love it. Judges love it when you point out that they're, they're incorrect and that their knowledge is flawed, right? They're like, oh, thank you. I had no idea I was, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so you've got to go in there and you've got to be able to um, set the stage for the judge because you have to be realistic about this. Nobody knows everything. Um, they don't have the information. So when you walk in and you're equipped and you're citing these rules, you're citing these codes, you're citing the laws that are being broken, it makes it difficult for even a judge to throw your case out. Um, this, when we started this, you know, I went in and I was like, oh, no, 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 and I'm, so the judge is looking at me, he's like, what are you talking about? And you know, I, I ended up going back down and the judge literally walks out. He says, Miss Crenshaw, I don't know anything about this and I need you to educate me on it. He brought in a sheriff's deputy and I'm explaining it to him and he'll, he would stop me and he'd say, stop Miss Crenshaw and he'd look over at the deputy and deputy go, yeah, she's spot on, she right. And he said, okay, Miss Crenshaw, go. So he brought the deputy in to test my knowledge of how well I knew this. Um, I, 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 I've studied this for four years. I, I've read it. I've reread it. I've gone through it. Um, it's amazing to me. I think whoever wrote the codes, the, the revised code, the administrative codes governing this were absolutely brilliant um, in the way that they linked police authority to that mandated training and i would love to shake their hand whoever they were i wanted to ask that 
Um, actually, I forgot that that was a, a question I had early on. It was just, um, do you know the the origin of this this addition to the to the law? Like, how was there something that prompted this, or, or what was the spirit or intent of it when when it was instituted? So, what I do know is that for years, I mean, decades, um, my dad and other advocates throughout the state of Ohio. Um, like I said, I grew up around this stuff, advocated for years about police needing more training. Um, they advocated to the state house and the state legislatures to change those rules, change those laws. Um, and so I think it was a direct result of advocacy um, and, and, and the, the state seeing, the state legislators seeing that people are dying because they don't have the training that they need. There's excessive force um, and it's almost impossible to fire a police officer because arbitrators give them their jobs back. But if you look at this code, they can be terminated from a department and arbitrators cannot give them their jobs back because they are no longer police. And so because the police rules and laws that govern them and protect them and give them affirmative defenses, um, they don't apply to someone who's no longer a police officer. So. Um, the chief that called yesterday, he said, well, Ms. Crenshaw, you know, an arbitrator would just say, make him take his training, give him his job back, give him his back pay. I said, well, where did you go to law school? Because the if he's not a police officer, he's not entitled to back pay. So that's easily uh, appealed uh, at the appellate level. Um, you cannot give someone a job back that was not qualified under the law to receive compensation. And so um, I'm, I said, I'm sorry, but your thinking is flawed. And um, I said, you guys really need Mariah. You really need Mariah to argue this case in court, right? So um, it's, it's, it's for me, as, as I continue to move forward on this and do all the research I'm doing, um, it's in my opinion that the state of Ohio uh, Attorney General's Office uh, of uh, peace officer training, they have created a statewide um, culture of unconstitutional policing. And it's, you know, as, as, as lawyers are taking on individual police departments, I think they're taking on the wrong, the wrong entity. They need to be taking on OPADA, um, who has exercised no discretion, no, uh, re, you know, no uh, accountability, no database, no oversight, misappropriations of billions of dollars of funds. Um, they've created a culture of unconstitutional policing in the state of Ohio by not ensuring that these people have their training. And so I don't think it absolves the individual agencies. Um, but I do think that there's a greater duty and responsibility um, that needs to be addressed at the state level. Well, Mariah, uh, is there anything else you want to you tack on here? I think this is a, a lot for people to take in, but you really boiled it down great. And uh, I just can't tell you how much I, I love all the work you're doing. I'm, I'm really glad to be aware of it. Well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate you. Um, like I said, we're doing this work. We're going to get this database together. So we are going to need people that are going to help us to put data information into, you know, into the database. 
um, because again, we have 34,000 people that we're going to be tracking their records and we're going to be tracking their training and, and um, we're going to need a lot of help with just simple database entry. <clears throat> Mariah's good, but she's not that good um, <laughs> to do all of it. Um, and so we've got boxes and boxes. This is absolutely hilarious. Since we put this out, September 29th is when we started sending out the public records request. We've been getting boxes of, of data in the mail um, that have literally filled up, like, you know how the two, the, the reams of paper, we've, we've got two of those filled up already. Um, we've got thumb drives, we've got CDs, we've got actual physical paperwork. Um, Orange Village has filled up an entire file cabinet uh, drawer. So They were good. Um, they are. They are. They, they really are. And again, I would love to um, advocate at the state level that the state would start to use what's going on in Orange Village with their training and, and, and their, you know, they have a whole safety department. And um, I would like to see what they're doing as a role model become part of um, mandates and policing it throughout the entire state. I mean, there's no reason for an officer to shoot somebody and not know how to give them CPR not know how to be, um, you know, give them first aid until an ambulance shows up to try to secure that life. There's just no reason for that. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with us having a properly trained um, police force. If we're going to be forced to keep that in our society, I don't think there's anything wrong with us raising the bar and having a higher expectation and be able to prepare those people to do the job we're asking them to do. And so um, um, until we can get the defunding, disbanding, whatever it is that um, people are screaming for, I think that we really should be concentrating on what's been said for, for decades is that if we're going to have them make sure that they have the, um, the proper training to do the job we're asking them to do. And then hopefully that will, you know, it will lead to, um, you know, lesser incidents of Breonna Taylor and Eric Gardner and Trayvon Martin and and of course my my poster child my heart child Brandon McLeod. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to start addressing a lot of these issues by eliminating people who one don't want to do the training. They don't want to. They don't want to do it. Um, and we see that they just simply don't want to do the training. Uh, if you have a mandate to take one hour of domestic violence and you don't take it, that means you don't want to take the training. It's like I don't care. Um, we, we need to be able to eliminate bad actors. And so um, we can do that by raising the standard, making sure that that standard is being enforced and that we're holding our safety directors, our law directors, our city, our county prosecutors and our mayors accountable for making sure that they have the training and not just trusting that the chief has done his job. There needs to be someone over the chief who's looking that knows what his job is supposed to be and is making sure that that is happening, you know? So um, um, we've got some reports coming out um, for two departments that don't have their training, um, who also have really high rates of uh, uh, racial profiling um, of African-Americans um, when it comes to ticketing and excessive force. So, they don't have their training. I'm not going to tell you who they are yet, but we've got some reports coming out and, and we're going to be um, putting that out there so that people know uh, that, you know, Chasing Justice is looking for people who are not afraid to do this work. You cannot be afraid to fight 
um, this, 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 this evil that's happening in our society. So, well, thanks, thanks um, so much, again, Mariah. And I will make sure to link. I will make sure to link to the Chasing Justice Facebook page so that uh, anyone who wants to help out can reach out and do that. And I encourage everybody listening to to do that and to follow this story and and share this story. And the next time you get pulled over, you might consider asking an officer, "Are you up to date on your CP training?" CPT, CPT, C- Continual Professional Training. Are you up to date on it? Um, there will be officers who will tell you, yes, I am. Um, and, and, and you know what? He really believes he is. And it's not till we pull those records and look to see. Um, he may even be shocked that he's not up to date. So again, this is not an anti-police campaign. This is an awareness campaign, not just to the public, but also to peace officers, because peace officers need to know if their chief did them right. They need to know were they guided correctly with their training, and they need to know if they have been operating unlawfully and to correct um, the malfeasance, the deficit. Um, It does not absolve them from the time period that they went out of compliance with the training, but they need to know now before they kill someone and then we have to file those affidavits against them to have them prosecuted because that is going to be the goal at the end of the day anyone who is in the state of ohio who kills someone who especially someone who is unarmed if you kill someone and we find out you don't have your training we're coming after you we're coming after you and that's not anti-police that has nothing to do with police as a whole. That has to do with that one person not being up to date on his mandated training and having legal authority because the narrative, Brian, changes. It goes from, I was in fear of my life. It goes from, no, dude, you weren't supposed to be there. You would have been in fear of your life if you were not there. And so it changes that whole narrative around that you do not have an affirmative defense under the law that you were in fear of your life because you weren't a cop. And so um, it's really, we want peace officers to be cautioned as to whether or not as they're acting, do they actually have their, um, their mandated training? And they also, so let me make this clear, not just the public, but I do have police chiefs calling me and saying, Mariah, can you look at my department and tell me, are we up to date? Because they don't trust the state. They don't trust the state has guided them correctly. And so when I say that this is an effort to bring awareness to the citizens, but it's also an awareness to bring it to the police and the police chiefs so that we together can fix this problem. We can do this. We don't have to keep fighting each other. We don't have to keep, you know, I hate Black Lives Matter. I hate Blue Lives Matter. No, we have the same enemy and it's the state of Ohio. The state of Ohio is screwing up all of us at this level and we have to put down put down our arguments and our fights and come together and fix the problem because it can't be fixed if we don't admit there is a problem we have to admit it and then we have to take that bull by the horns and we have to deal with it on whatever level we need to deal with it on and if it means that a dep- i've had chiefs say to me brian mariah if you tell me my department is not today we're going to fix it immediately like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all right, um, because they know that the previous chief may not have done their job, and so they want to make sure that 
as they are the new chiefs and they've come into these apartments that they want to make sure everybody there is up to date and they're serious about it. So this is not, like I said, I become, become that liaison between the police and between um, the citizens. And I'm hoping that this will catch on and that more people will become engaged. And, you know, like I said, we need people to help us with data entry um, to start compiling these records and putting them so that they're easily accessible, um, being able to look at them and determine whether or not an officer is compliant or not. Um, and, and, and it's really simple. It's not, it's not difficult to do at all. Um, that's why I don't understand why the state has been so negligent. It's really simple thing to do the way that our code is written. But again, Chasing Justice, LLC, Miss Mariah uh, Crenshaw on Facebook. You can contact me, 216-438-0761. Um, we are, you know, we are sincere about and dedicated about making sure that, you know, policing changes in Ohio and that we don't keep hearing these tragedies that keep occurring. And so thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me on here. And thank you, Mariah. I appreciate everything you're doing. And you have, you have a great day and you stay safe. <laughs> you too. And make sure you wear that mask when you're out there because those COVID numbers went up there. They have the highest numbers reported today than they've Always. had. So, yeah. I love the mask. I don't know why everyone's fighting the masks. I mean, you know, I've wanted to pretend I was a ninja all the time when I was a kid. And now I just get to go around doing it whenever I want. Wait a minute, hold on. I just got a Wonder Woman. I have Wonder Woman. I'm like excited. I've got Wonder Woman. Yeah. Like who can't make this, you know, who can't make this fun? Um exactly. to have, you know, your own guy, right. So I don't know. Um, you know, it's 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 it, it's just that, you know, I'm I'm kinda scared right now because COVID is is, you know, it's cold and flu season. And I just want to make sure that when you're out there, because you're out there and I can't come out there with you. Um, when you're out there doing those, you know, covering stuff because I have lupus. And so for me, having a compromised immune system, being around a lot of people, it's just not a good idea for Mariah mm -hmm. um, to be out there. So, um, but you know, my heart is with you. I'm always out there with you in spirit, even though I can't physically be there anymore like I used to when I was younger. Um, but you can bet I'm sitting here on this computer and I'm doing stuff and I'm looking at records and I'm pulling stuff and I'm working on everything so that we can, you know, we can make a serious difference in our society. So thank you for the work that you do, Brian. Um, and I'm so glad that we had an opportunity to meet and talk and um, I, I just appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you so much for watching and to close things out this week. Here's a video the fam and I made to announce the winner of the October Patreon swag stakes. Every month, I give away a piece of swag to a random patron supporter. Mm, it's, a, it's a good reason to jump on. Also, supporting independent journalism. All right. Thanks so much. You have a happy Halloween and stay safe. Every month, one lucky Patreon supporter is chosen at random to receive a prize I've procured from a previous podcast person I've interviewed. Here to help me with this month's drawing is my lovely wife, Deb Zepp. Tell them about this month's prize, Deb.
This month's winner will receive a copy of Blue Mafia by Tim Tolka. The story of two police departments, their turbulent relationship with the local community, and how a crazy lawyer risked everything to bring in a higher authority. It's a fascinating tale of police corruption. And now, would you do the honors of drawing the name from the hat? <laughs> would you please draw this month's winner from the hat? Tim Toka. Yeah. He wrote the book. Yeah. Simona Berman. Congratulations, Simona. I will be emailing you shortly with details on how to obtain your prize. Stay tuned to the podcast for next month's Swag Stakes giveaway. And thank you so much for supporting independent journalism. Good night and stay safe. <laughs>